I'll keep this intro very, very brief. This is my conversation with Yancy Strickler. It is a very thoughtful conversation. His answer to the first question is quite long, so I should probably tell you that he co-founded Kickstarter. He's written for The Village Voice and Pitchfork and eMusic and various other publications. And this is just a really enlightening conversation about where the economics of journals and magazines have come from and where they might be headed. So over to Yancy. And I thought as somebody who has spent some of their early years writing, a lot of their time looking at the creator economy, that you would have some interesting thoughts. So the question I'm asking everyone to start all of these interviews is, what is journalism? I was thinking about that question as I was making coffee before this conversation. And... You know, I know the go-to answers of uh, journalism is what people don't want you to say or whatever. Like anything that's not that is PR. There's, I forget the line, but there's some line like that. Um, but I find journalism hard to define today. Because on the one hand, you would say, okay, well, journalism is the uh, maybe a search for fact, um, an attempt to present truth does journalism do that i i would say occasionally um not certainly not always and there are also other ways of other means of finding truth like finding an emotional truth or finding a spiritual truth that to me feel even more important than facts in a way but those things are not journalism that is something else entirely um there's been a notion that journalism is about uh, holding true holding power to account um maybe maybe for a certain side of things like uh is pitchfork holding power to account you know <laughs> how does that work in uh in like an arts context for how long did they cover um, kanye without holding him to account well yeah i mean well that's interesting because they're you know they're they're reporting on music and so they talk about the music and is the music good or not and like mm. that is the scope and R. Kelly played that. Yeah, there's a, there's, there's a, (laughs) there's a level of, um, there's just in a level of assumption that to me feels kind of 20th century about the journalism as the fourth estate. It's what, uh, it's what checks power, but I think the internet has changed how we view these things because, you know, the act of maybe having a megaphone and being able to speak is something that's available to anybody. Maybe what journalists have that an individual voice doesn't have today is that they have a legitimizing platform and a platform that the public readers, viewers are meant to take as objective, uh, adhering to some higher truth. But I think that I think for most people today, I don't think they really think that's true of any journalistic out, you know, outlet. Um, you see it when new, new outlets began, where it's like, we think that there was a missing voice in the middle, or we think there was a mo- voice missing here. And then you already see right from the beginning, like, oh, there's an intent here. There's an intent here that is not about truth, that is actually about uh, a marketing angle, uh, an audience share that they think that they can get, and that it's ultimately about uh, trying to sort of own or control or shape a certain audience and how they see the world. I think also a lot of that's defining who the audience is for the advertisers, not necessarily for the audience themselves. And I think going if you look at the ad-supported model of a lot of media, then a lot of what you just said is, this is what the advertise. This is who the advertiser is looking to target. So we made a publication that ticks these boxes, like GQ magazine being a magazine designed to sell expensive watches, because that's who's got the money to take out regular advertising. Um, that's my very cynical take on some publications, I don't, I don't not all those, publications. <laughs> well, I don't think things um, start that way. But even I've been reading a lot of books about the 19th century recently, and there were so many newspapers publications mm-hmm. then. And, and they would represent 
extremely specific points of view. You know, there's a newspaper in New York for like fresh immigrants to New York City, depending on where they're from, that is mm. speaking from within their cultural context. And, you know, the New York World and Herald Tribune had a different perspective than someone else. And they were representing different interests. And, and I think that is what these are. They are publications that are meant to represent a set of interests. In the 20th century mass media age, the dominance of major broadcast networks and their ability to dominate the conversation created a feeling of uh, there is an established objective truth. The world is black and white in certain ways. We can discern good from bad, right from wrong. With our eyes now, we look back at those things and we say, well, there's a lot of fault with that. And that wasn't actually the case. And there's a, a lot of errors made in that. And, and so now, you know, we have these two, we have these two interesting for, or not just two, but we have the force of, well, obviously anyone can publish online. And so the value of publishing something has gone down. The value of publishing something goes down means that the uh, potential revenue value of being next to something that's published in terms of advertising has gone down. So advertising is no longer the main way any of these platforms make money. And now it's turned to reader-supported models. And those can be um, as straightforward as a Substack with paid subscribers to the New York Times, which now I believe the majority of its revenue uh, comes from uh, subscribers to to the Mac, to the newspaper, BBC is you know an, obviously an exception, um, a, a different model. But in those in those models where you are being directly supported by a readership, uh, of course that creates a different set of um, considerations, a, a different set of decisions, a different set of outcomes than you would in a, in another model. And I can't say that those are better or worse. Uh, I would say that maybe they are less lucrative, perhaps. Overall, maybe there's the same amount of money being spent to support journalism. If you added it all up, I, I wouldn't be surprised if in the end it's like not that different, but it's just more diffused across many, many places. And, you know, I think the public probably benefits from that in the end. Maybe it's messier, it's less clean, yeah. it's confusing. That's for sure. For people like you or I, who in past lives made a living writing for places and, you know, fit into this machine, I was like the lowest possible rung in this machine. But I got, you know, so, I get fifty so bucks a pop um, to do something. Yeah. Let me let me break in because this I didn't want to interrupt, and the listeners probably can't hear unless my headphones are rattling. I was nodding along to everything you were saying. The idea of that question it was it was kind of a short question to then introduce who you were so let's let's introduce you to the audience a bit more so you um i just think i knew you would have a great answer to that question and it's the reason why i love open questions um because that's probably shaken some dust that maybe you hadn't even considered um and so yes yeah, so do you want to introduce yourself yancy from from where where were your your humble writer beginnings yeah so yeah my, my name is yancy Strickler. I'm a American. I live in New York City. Um, the first decade of my career was as a music critic, music writer, working for, the first place I wrote was Pitchfork, Village Voice, Spin Magazine. And then I worked as the... Did you um, ever give anyone a really bad Pitchfork review that has become internet famous? No, I did not. I wrote some okay, bad good. Pitchfork <laughs> reviews, but that was just my own copy, not not the, not the a reviewing someone else's work. Um mm -hmm. And uh, and then spent a decade working as the managing editor or editor-in-chief of different music publications that were housed within larger commercial projects, which is interesting. So uh, a news service that was owned by Clear Channel for radio stations, uh, a magazine that was part of an online music store called eMusic for many years. And we then, loved eMusic. Yeah. And then... Uh, and then since then, I co-founded uh, a company called Kickstarter, which introduced crowdfunding to the world and uh, was co-founder and CEO there. And that was around 2007, wasn't it? 
Yeah, I, that was uh, Kickstarter launched in 2009. Um, I, I left Kickstarter in 2017. And in the years since then, spent several years really as a full-time writer, writing a nonfiction, philosophy, economics book, doing all kinds of things during COVID. And in the past two years, I've been working on a project called MetaLabel, which is uh, trying to introduce a new forms and structures for how creative people publish work on the web. And But at my heart, I, I am and always will be a writer. And that is, yeah. that's how I think, that's how I process, that's who my friends are. And, um, and certainly something that continues to be of great interest, even as it's not my it's more my avocation than vocation these days, but uh, still very yeah. much in my heart. So it's interesting. I didn't know you'd worked for those institutions doing journalism, which really brings me on to my first question. I guess this is probably my third question. Who's keeping count? Um, the The idea that you've spoken a lot, like I've come along to, um, you ran like a summer school last year, which was utterly illuminating, um, with people like Holly Herndon and um, Extinction Rebellion, which I think are two very different ends of a pole, but probably very similar in their, in where they're approaching the world. And you talked a lot about the institutions, like going back to some of the earliest kind of pamphlets and magazines. So um, with your history cap on, I'd be quite curious to hear how you would join the dots between that kind of benefactor-produced media or interest produced media? Like, how would you talk about how magazines kind of started and why they've continued to be such a central part of what institutions and individuals create? Yeah, my the, the project I'm working on, MetaLabel, began after I was burnt out of being a individual writer trying to grind my way through the creator economy to be something, do things. <laughs> and uh, I, I got became burnt out and spent a month reading and just trying to fill my cup again. And there were two things I read that leapt off the page and changed my direction in life. One was a book about um, about the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution. And in particular, it was a story of how the Royal Society began. And the Royal Society began in 1660 when Sir Christopher Wren and two dozen uh, natural law teachers at universities in London began meeting at a pub on Thursday nights to talk. And Which is where all the best things start in a London pub. For sure. And natural, probably that pub is still open. Uh, and that, mm. you know, natural law was the term for facts that only God would know, like mm. how your bloodstream works, where does weather come from, what we now call science. The concept of science didn't exist yet. And these people would meet at a pub, and eventually they had this idea of what if we started a club that was dedicated to this idea that facts can be determined through evidence rather than by what uh, a pope or a king or some sort of leader says is true, that facts can be determined on their own and not through power. And so they formed a group around this and they started conducting what were the first experiments of let's try to prove something through fact. And these were quite immature and simple to start, but they published these in a journal that I think of as the first zine, where each mm -hmm. month or so they would publish a pamphlet that would be here are the different things we tried that different people on our network have tried to determine fact. And the mouse did not survive. <laughs> yeah. And so that, that began in, I think, 1662 or around then was the very first one of those. And they're still published today. And mm -hmm. through those journals, there's an iterative process by which they established a common language and a common way of understanding and approaching these questions. That is where the scientific method was invented where peer review was iterated on as a way to test and verify things that people had tried. And through these journals, um, the Babbage machine was funded and first shared the first images of a microscope. They began pulling money into projects. And literally the scientific revolution and science itself was manifested 
through this iterative process of two dozen people that had a same feeling or direction that they were pointing and just publicly expressing those ideas. And at the same time I was reading that story, I was also reading about uh, a book called Our Band Could Be Your Life by Michael Lazarad about the start of punk and hardcore in America. And what leapt off the page of that book were the stories of how bands like Big Black or Minor Threat or Beat Happening, they were based in you know, random places. Uh, they made weird music. They would want to put out their first seven inch or first EP. They would submit it to record labels, hoping that they would say yes and put them out. No one cared. And so instead they had to make their own labels to put out their own work. And so that is how SST was started, how K records began, how discord records began. But there was this magical thing that happened that once they formed this label, which is just a name, just a name and like a meta structure. Um, once they formed that, their friends would start bands and their friends would say, mm -hmm. can you put me out too? And their friends would start bands that were similar to what they did, that had the same vibe or were from the same place. And so there's this way that this framing of a, of a label, which is like a nebulous kind of concept as this thing hanging hazily in the air above, but it sort of gives a permission and uh, and a worldview that invites someone else to participate in it and add to it. And as a result, they created hardcore. They created straight edge punk. They created the Northwest scene. And in all of these models of creating science or hardcore, uh, I saw these as the same fundamental act of a small group of people making some commitment to some vision, aesthetic, creative, philosophical, and then trying to manifest it. And, you know, today when we try to manifest a vision, we think, oh, we're going to build a product. You know, we have such a late stage capitalism idea of like, we have to make a product. What's the total addressable market? Who's the VC? Whatever. We jump to this spot. But in, th in this model, it's more, what are things that we can release that express what we feel? And unintentionally, I think, by expressing what they felt, it brought more people into that worldview and ultimately made it something tangible and made it something with real cultural impact. And so that process of how one voice attracts others, having an open framework that allows those others to contribute and share in that journey, to me, that is maybe the most durable model for cultural influence, um, for making a lasting impact that we know of. And I would certainly say, uh, publications are like very much at the center of that. And if you think mm -hmm. of something like the village voice where I used to write, I mean, that was Norman Mailer and other people wanting to represent, yeah, you know, what is the East village? What is down? What is downtown saying? Like the New York times is in it. These other things are in it. Mm -hmm. They don't get it. We need to express what we feel. You see, make the village voice. And so this is, this is true all the time. It's true online as well today. Um, but we've lived in an age the past, 20 years, especially highly individualized. We assume the internet has been pre presented to us as a tool of individual liberation, which it is and can be. Uh, but it's also uh, a method by which new institutions are being formed. And that I think one of those institutions or, or types of institutions that's really going to emerge in this next era of the internet is going to be more of these collective structures where people with strong individual voices, aligning themselves together around underneath a shared umbrella to create meaning and focus on what it is they collectively care about. So if you think about Sir Christopher Wren, he had just like, I'm just going to keep doing architecture and whatever, writing about things I write about. And Isaac Newton's just going to write his math shed and whatever. Everyone has their own little lanes and they're quite diffused. Uh, does that still in the end net in the scientific revolution? Quite possibly. But by them aligning and saying, let's publish together under the same place so that people encounter all these ideas at once, I think the, the impact of that is way bigger. And my theory, hope, the goal of this Project in MetaLabel is to try to create the infrastructure, the operating system, plant the seeds for that to happen more now. And yeah, I'm, I'm quite optimistic and feel 
delusionally confident that that is going to happen. So <clears throat> I've got loads of questions, but I've, I've heard you tell that story of one, at least once before. And I always pick up on this concept of like a journal has such a clear purpose and a record label has a clear purpose to release records, but actually to express something. Um, and that sense of them all being collective endeavors, which feels very at odds in the age of influencers and YouTubers, where it's a kind of ego project led by usually one person. But so much of what other people's involvement in that is expressing their identity by being a fan of something or being part of the community or a benefactor of it. And I think a lot about I think one of the first times I met you, I was really interested in fan funding, crowdfunding, the lots of different terms for it. And I, I, I couldn't quite get my head beyond this is just pre-ordering. <laughs> and if not enough people pre-order, it doesn't exist. Um, which I know wasn't the case because it was about being part of something. It was your name in the credits, your sense of this is the things that I want to manifest and exist in the world and not long after that I started thinking a lot about if I could have put 50 pounds into Motown um, or 50 pounds into the early days of Rolling Stone and got their first few releases the first few magazines I probably would do that knowing now what it's become and I think the idea of manifesting is obviously important but we need audiences to envision what something can be and how it reflects who they are potentially. Um, see, there's a whole soup of different thoughts I have, but I've, I've been thinking a lot about who those benefactors are because we're so reliant on the consumer of something. And I think one of the other topics you've spoken about quite a bit is about public goods. But I'm also kind of curious in the Royal Society, would that have been funded through the fact that it was selling lots of copies? Was it funded through the fact that an institution just thought, well, this should exist. This is like our in-house magazine. Let's just print it. Um, but similarly, like working somewhere like eMusic, they understood the value of the editorial to the, the audience. And I think given last week's news around Bandcamp defunding, there um, there was there was air quotes there because um, we don't know fully what's happened at Bandcamp at the time of recording, but it sounds like the majority of the editorial team's gone. Like, how important is it of who that benefactor is? Because I, th I think, like, the era of crowdfunding and Patreons are all really interesting, but they rely on a mass of people or a mass of wealthy people, <laughs> a niche of wealthy people to, to support something. So I'd just be really curious on your thoughts around the economics and I guess the difference between a corporate good and a... Um, <laughs> I'm not trying to do, like, the chaotic good. Yeah, sure. But, like, a public good being kind of to slightly different things. Well, a lot, a lot of a lot of great things to dig into there. Uh, just to start from one, one of your first points of um, the model now is like you're a YouTuber and you have fans, or even crowdfunding. I have a project you can pre-purchase something I'm making from it and support it, make it exist. These models do assume a there's like a hierarchical, um, you know entity node up top that everyone is sort of like playing paying allegiance to or paying money to and there's a it is an exchange for sure but it's not like uh people are being invited to become a part of that inner ring uh to be that group mm -hmm. um and i do not think that if economic rights and outcomes were being exchanged i also don't think that means really becoming an inner part of that group um, you know, Kickstarter, we were never interested in offering, uh, having equity crowdfunding, being a part of what we did because our feeling was most creative projects are going to be shit businesses. That's not why they exist. And they shouldn't be asked to conform to profit motives and to encourage people to view them as like, is this going to be a big deal or not? That just feels like the same game that devalues creative work and culture in general. So, um, and so I think all these systems are built on an architecture of the internet that assumes every user is an individual. Um, it assumes the, an individual can have many different accounts, but like it is an individual to individual sort of notion. 
obviously the web has allowed us to congregate, join communities like message boards, forums, great places where I grew up that are hugely meaningful. But I think that there is a level of group activity that is still unexplored uh, to imagine what happens if you allow groups of people to easily come together, disperse, come together, disperse, share credit, do things together. I think that that is uh, uh, something to be quite excited about and interested in. And that that's the direction that MetaLabel is pointing. Um, but, you know, for these, if I think about eMusic, um, you know, eMusic is interesting because it was a, uh, it was a, originally an all you can eat subscription model. So you'd pay like 10 bucks a month, you could download everything you wanted. Uh, not a great business, as you can imagine. When I got there, uh, a private equity firm had bought its scraps from Universal that had dumped it. You know, it was the very first place MP3s were sold. And so when I joined, it was, uh, 10 bucks a month and you could download 40 songs, I believe is the model. Yeah. Um, but at that time, which is major... at a time when your phone, your phone could probably only hold 40 tracks. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, and you know, at, at the time there were no, because the music industry was still figuring out what to do about the internet. There were no major labels on e-music. It was all indie labels. And so for the, private equity firm that owned eMusic, they looked at the catalog and they're like, we don't know what the hell this is, but there's like millions of songs. And so someone had the foresight, uh, uh, David Pakman, uh, the CEO, had the foresight to say, well, a way that we can elevate things and make them meaningful is through editorial. Editorial is how you can help someone appreciate something that otherwise they wouldn't know what it would be. And so the goal there of eMusic was the editorial team is how we will market and make things discoverable and add value to this random collection of things. And for myself, Michael Azarad, who was the original editor-in-chief of that team, Joe Keys, who is the current head of Bandcamp Daily, was uh, also part of that. It was me, Michael, Joe, Michelangelo Matos, Juliana Shepard, great people. Uh, we together were doing that. And that was magical because I got to spend months like dissecting the Smithsonian Folkways catalog to pull out the best <laughs> records to push to people. But it was serving a corporate purpose, like it fit into their goals. It wasn't because they cared about journalism. We were always, it was always very clear. We, we got to do what we wanted, but it was like, it was a trade. It was a trade. Yeah. Uh, I think Bandcamp, where Joe left the music to go to run Bandcamp daily, and Joe's like, all the ways that people love Bandcamp Daily, that's Joe Keys. That's, that's him and the team, not just him, but him and that team of people who are just so passionate. And, you know, every day at eMusic, every day we just listen to every new record that got ingested and just like play each song and hear what it sounded like. And there's just a hunger and a thirst that, um, you know, the storefront gave us a reason to share. And so that, you know, the same for Bandcamp. Now, will the, new like the best owners... of both worlds? You got the best of both worlds. You got to be a music magazine journalist, and you got to work in a record shop. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, you know, Bandcamp thought similarly, and you know, similarly, Bandcamp's a strange catalog now. Gotten more normal as Bandcamp has hung around, and now even like Ornette Coleman has a Bandcamp, you know, store. Um, and so I think the same for them. They saw how do you add value to a catalog where people struggle, might struggle to see the value? You use editorial to elevate it. And will their new owners see that? Who knows? Who knows? But it's definitely true that any of these projects, you are at the whims of your owner and what they see fit to justify. And, um, you know, I, I mean... I don't know of a single editorial publication in the last 20 years that hasn't had its its budget balloon, shrink, go back up again with a new owner, shrink again. You know, these are things that people struggle to, struggle to justify from an ROI, even as they know it feels good, even as they know people value it. Um, they struggle to think about how to value it. And, you know, the best projects have leadership teams that believe and that see the value, the worst projects don't. Uh, you know, Apple, Apple has the iTunes store, no editorial, no care, you know, because they didn't have to, because they already have everything yeah. and they just wanted to be a 
shop where you walk in and look at what's in the front racks and you leave, you don't care. Um, and so I'm definitely not writing the obit for, uh, for Bandcamp. Joe Keys is still there running Bandcamp daily. It's a great catalog. You know, so many, so many things are there. Um, and they are still investing more care in celebrating music than Spotify, than, you know, these other places that see it as so fungible and they'd rather you listen to Patrick Stewart's audiobook than like, you know, the new King Cruel or whatever. And, uh, but you know, this is life under, this is life under capitalism, you know, and it's under, it's under people that value databases and KPIs over human connection. It's the, it's the profit before people model of tech bros, libertarians, isn't it? It's like we're beholden to their whims of, uh, I'm, I'm oversimplifying and yeah, I don't know. Um, potentially I don't know. I mean, car- I, cartoonizing, but it's, I would say that, I would say that I, I used, this is the annoying thing about getting older is that I used, I used to have that attitude. And then, and then I found myself in those seats. You know, I found myself in those seats at Addy Music, at Kickstarter, you know, on the board of other projects. And the humility I've learned with age is that if someone from the outside seems to be doing something irrational, it's a good idea to ask yourself, like, what information might they possess that I do not? that makes their decisions actually make sense. And that's what's hard. That's what's hard a lot of these situations where like, you know, I saw I saw a meme last week that was like uh, an image of heaven. And it was like, in heaven was like Ronald Reagan, Robin Williams, a bunch of random celebrities. And they were saying, welcome band camp. <laughs> welcome band camp. You know, I see people arguing, don't buy things on band camp right now to like, hurt song trader which is this amazing logic of we should hurt our allies to harm our enemies yeah. <laughs> right this like this internet logic that's just so gets so caught up in itself and I, I guess the bigger difference is i suspect you probably supported quite a few projects on kickstarter that you just saw and thought that's great and i want to back that and similarly if we had this conversation just about the records you loved you would be interrupting me, trying to tell me to listen to a certain record. And if you were running Spotify, you'd probably annoy a load of people every so often by just putting beat happening on the homepage for no reason. And like you would understand the cultural dissonance that you could create. And you would, like, I've never heard Daniel X speak passionately about music. I heard him talk in a room in a pub um, with um, someone who went on to build Discover Weekly. Um, uh, Matt Ogle and some of the guys from the SoundCloud team and they had these like I guess like <clears throat> fireside chat I guess is the but they were like a room above a pub they invited a different guest each month and when Spotify was in beta they invited Eck and he didn't speak once about music and when it finished I asked him what music he liked and he he had to think about it Like, if you ask me what music I like, I might have to think about it because I've got so many things I want to say and I want to think about who my audience is and what I'm going to tell them about. But he wasn't building a music platform because he loved music. And I think the big... This this was the thing that I was saying a minute ago when I was cartoonizing, the the bro that's replaced the man. Um, The concept of the passion and the purpose behind things, which I think... um, sometimes one can 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 make it harder to achieve the other um as i have personally um discovered from trying to run at the wall faster than if i'd walked towards it (laughs) um i think that there's huge i think there's there's a huge difference between people that build something because they're building it for a community or they're building it because they think the thing should exist and people that are building it because they know that there's two different types of value isn't there there's people that want to create value for shareholders and there's people that want to create value for the people they're releasing or the people that that are buying it and i think that we are if anything the splintering of culture feels like a splintering between people that value art and people that just think 
making as much money as possible is the most important thing. Um, I don't know. I'm oversimplifying again, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't. I think I think that oversimplification is not unfair. Um, Sorry, there know, wasn't at the, a question. At the music, yeah. at the well, just at the you know, in the music industry. The music industry is like is a is actually like a contract industry or something, mm. and to make a music related startup project anything, um, you either have to pretend or decide that the history of recorded music up until now doesn't exist, so we're not going to include anything that exists in the you know copyright songwriting rights, all those, all those structures. Uh, or you're in a place of negotiating with a group of entities that hold the rights to every important asset that exists, and you're going to have to work according to their terms. And so I've been in many meetings with those people, and, you know, it's, it's like a it's like those scenes in Anchorman where they're like facing off against the rival news teams and like the weather guy and the weather guy face off mm. against each other. You know, when I go into those meetings, it's like in both entities, the execs are execs. They are business people who are, uh, have models that show them the, you know, the relative value, the churn of customers, the, just like the economics that make it work. And then both teams will have like sitting at the end of the table will be the person who cares about music. You know, it's like me on one side pointing to yeah. like the person at UMG and I'm like, oh, I yeah. love these things in your catalog. And they're like, yeah, it's so dope. But yeah. we're like at the end of the table. Do you want to come to the warehouse with a tote bag yeah. and take some yeah, records? Totally, time? totally. We're sitting at the end of the table. We are a little bit of the face, the face of the product, you know, our point of view, the point of view that says, here's things to be passionate about. Here's what's exciting this week. Um, and, you know, I had my moments of being jaded about that. But honestly, like, without those big systems, I wouldn't have been able to have that opportunity to even do those things or to care. And it's a, it's a, funny, it's a funny situation uh, to find yourself in. And, um, yeah, so I, 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 in the end, I think, look at most of these things and places with a level of empathy and just... I've been in so many conversations and meetings in rooms like that, and I can't say I know how things go exactly now, but I feel like I have a general sense of what is at stake. And and then there's just a greater challenge in music of, you know, and just in culture at large, like culture at large has, in the same way that the 20th century there were so few media entities. They're all so valuable and everything they did was so valuable. And now that value is so diffuse. Similarly, like the role of music or film in culture is not what it was. That cultural value has been diffused to so many places. And, and so it's a little bit like you're in a, you know, you're in like a tourist town where people don't go as much anymore. You know, it's like the gift shop isn't as packed as it was, you know, in the old days. Because there's now 500 other tourist towns they could be at. Yeah, totally. And so at that point, what is, how is that meant to work? You know, how is that meant to work? And yeah, I mean, when I talk to people who run labels, who have established catalogs, they say times have never been better, actually. Mm. Because, you know, there's only so often someone's going to buy a new copy of Exile on Main Street. You can only create so many reasons to reissue it. But you know what? You know, maybe a million people play it every day and it adds up over time. And where where it's hardest is for new artists who, you know, they're coming to the they're they're opening a shop in the tourist town after people have moved out. And it's like, oh my God, 20 years ago, people would have loved your laser tag mm. place. You know, but these days, sorry. But it's, it's also like yeah. if someone tried to start Discord today, there's just like the barriers of just getting it going, like They'd have to sign a distribution deal with like an, a subsidiary of Warner Brothers or Sony, and it's like that's that's not what that's not what the ethos or they, of Discord. You know, or they or they would have just been a Bandcamp director fan store, and it it would have they would have been super serving their the audience that knew about them, but struggling but the beauty, to find a new one. It's I mean it's a different if it's it's a different journey, but like 
you know, Discord, it's like we have to find someone to distribute our records. We had like the whole thing, soup to nuts you have to do. Yeah, now you can you start a Bandcamp shop. If you do something well enough, maybe Secretly Canadian picks you up and we'll do distro for you. You know, there are there are paths that aren't the uh, the jackpot, um, but it's just the pie is not what it was. And as we all know, the competition for everything is just is brutal. And, you know, and it's coincided with the cost of everything and, you know, the cost of being alive going up and it's a, it's a squeeze. It's a squeeze that feels relentless. It's a squeeze that we don't know how to get out of. I feel like we're starting to downward spiral, so we should pick people up. Yeah, let's pick it up again. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Me downward spiraling, who who would have thought though? um, I I think there's something in a lot of the things that you've talked about and i think history is often something that gives me a lot of hope the idea that the medium of magazines is something that's that's so old and i keep coming back to this thought that will magazines have their vinyl moment um like cream recently relaunched and it's like i think it's about 20 dollars an issue um i did order some and it was nearly 100 pounds for like three issues and the postage um, and then they let me off some of the postage when I complained that how much the postage was. Um, but they were hefty magazines. They're not something I could, I don't think they even fit in my backpack, um, which is kind of where I used to carry magazines everywhere. <laughs> they were my on the go reader magazine in the 20 minutes on the tube. Um, and I just wonder whether you've recently released some reasonably high end things. And I have a, uh, a copy of After the Creator Economy on my desk that I was quickly reading through before we started chatting, um, which I've obviously read before, but it was quite nice to revisit it. Um, I'd just be curious whether you feel like the tangible physical elements of a magazine could, in a way, it becomes limited, rare. It's all those things where value can be attributed it more easily than another line of content in a database. Uh, For sure, for sure. I mean, I think... You know, part of what made magazines cheap in the past were all the advertisements that let them defray costs. So I would expect the cost to continue to be high. And one thing holding back the growth of more magazines or zines is like printing is expensive, not easy. Uh, There aren't a lot of places that do it well. But um, certainly I think that whenever you have a extreme abundance of something as we do with like ideas and writing and images on the web that there then becomes an opportunity to uh, curate and cultivate that into something of greater meaning to curate and cultivate that into an artifact that makes a statement of some kind um, that represents a point of view as a moment in time a scene um among my friends in New York and especially my younger friends in New York people in their 20s like people save up to buy art books and zines you know and I was having a conversation with two friends where they're talking about oh yeah I try to buy like three a week or something and I was the old man telling them about the hundred quid man in record shops you know that would every Friday <laughs> buy you know six things and listen to in that week and uh but so for them, it's like a, a zine or an art book represents, it's a world. You're opening up a world. You're, you're immersing yourself in a universe that is only there. And the fact that it's only there and not something that can be replicated online is what's interesting. There's a, a zine that I bought in 15 years ago called Cable that's just outrageously good that I have read... I don't know, maybe 50, 60 times. I read it again the other day, just a lot of images. It's just, it's so powerful. And I don't know how many copies exist. It's If I search for it online, it doesn't show up anywhere. But it's like, yeah, it's like a great song. It's like an amazing piece of art. It like conveys a feeling. It takes me someplace. And uh, I don't remember the last time a website did that. And so I think that there is a, there's an additional oomph, there's an amplitude that comes with making 
making something so specific, making something contained, making something that is itself and nothing more than itself. And I don't expect that to scale. I don't expect that to be like, we're so back vibes, you know? Um, But I think it represents an opportunity for meaning making in a way that's, you know, the way that and it's more confined, but also um, maybe within each individual person, person is much bigger than like the passive experience of the web. And um, I've, I've personally found myself excited by it, by these things, especially if they are personally, personally held, especially if they represent a specific point of view. Um, you know, you can feel the sincerity when it's there you can also feel it when it's not there and you know there have been like two great magazines i think they're both now gone for the last 10 years that i always loved new philosopher out of australia both from australia new philosopher and uh, offline both great Mm. great that i think in the end discontinued i think new philosopher's still going new philosopher one of their instagram posts yesterday okay great i love i love that magazine um they also make a magazine called Womankind, which a few of my friends have said is really good too. I've not seen that one because they're a little. The company's a little bit like the Church of London, which make um, Little White Lies and Huck, and mm. they used to be involved in Stall Pigeon magazine, which was a great newspaper. Mm, yeah. um, but I, w- I was just thinking the um, one of your greatest hits from uh, doing my research you've mentioned on quite a few podcasts was Grand Royal and the Beastie Boys, um, and how they funded both a record label and a magazine. Um, and I'd just be curious, like in an era where identity politics and individualism and how we express who we are are important, um, it feels like, so if you're streaming a record, if, if you've not got the liner notes, why aren't more artists making cool magazines to go with their albums? Like I think Frank Ocean did like a, a limited mag and I, and I've, that's great. And I just, I think like in terms of like curation (laughs) being able to choose what you dedicate space to in a magazine is really important it says the things that you care about slightly more than others um i had the joy of writing for a magazine called bang that was a london-based magazine for a while and they just decided to launch with the flaming lips because they could not because they thought it was going to sell but because they thought it would be important and they dedicated 12 pages to the darkness when they were a smallish band and like but they made decisions based on what they thought was important. So just curious, like the little bit about Grand Royal for anyone that doesn't know, but also um, like as a, as a form of expression, like I feel like magazines are so unique. Yeah, I mean, Grand, Grand Royal, um, this was launched by the Beastie Boys in the mid 90s, the height of their power. I think it came out in between ill communication and... I'm going to get them wrong. Hello, nasty. Maybe a little earlier than that. But, you know, they, the BC boys were always a part of a scene. They're part of the New York scene. And, you know, they themselves are just such like lovers of culture. I mean, it shows up in their music, obviously. And they created Grand Royal Mag as a way to platform things they cared about. Like, that's where, um, really Lee Scratch Perry got a big, uh, a big focus was they, one of their first issues was devoted to Scratch and just like, just celebrating Scratch and what he'd made. And they made a label where they put out the first Luscious Jack. It wasn't the first Luscious Jackson record, but the biggest Luscious Jackson record. There's a day when they mattered a lot. That was a great record. And, At the and they were just, they were just platforming what they believed in and cared about because it was cool. Now, it was also, uh, what's hard about these things is that you do have to operate them as businesses. You do have to, you know, you have to mind the cash. You have to think about it. And artists, artists launched labels, projects like this have a mixed history. Like American Zoetrope is Francis Ford Coppola's uh, label that he started after The Godfather. It's through that that Goudard, Truffaut, Fellini, 
end up having worldwide screenings because he began distributing them. It's how he was able to fund Apocalypse Now, even as it was like comically over budget, but he's just taking his own money and pouring in. That was like deeply painful and hard at the time. In the long run, it really paid off and like proved to be Francis's notion of value and was like on point. It just took a while. Um, and, you know, today, like to use the most obvious example, but, you know, what if Taylor Swift had a magazine? Right, like, what if what if Taylor Swift wanted to create a space to platform things that she celebrated, the things that she cared about, things she thought her fans wanted? I was thinking about Dua Lipa's publication. Like, she's got a podcast, and I I don't know if it's a physical magazine, but it's definitely a blog and service. I'm going to get the name wrong, but I'll put it in the in the show description. Um, but that that's one of the few examples I've seen of an artist who's been successful realizes they've got a, an interesting platform got topics they want to talk about that not normally things that would be brought up in interviews with them and really using their space in the world to shine a light on other people which um but there aren't loads of examples like i don't know going back to what i said earlier it's like if i was daniel Eck, would i be spending my money on barcelona football club or would i have like forced bands out of retirement to release albums or um put on a festival that's just like noise bands but or yeah <laughs> like i mean Miami what if they made yeah i mean spotify should make there are all these great record guides the trouser press record guide the all music record guide mm. chris gal's record guide you know these encyclopedic celebrations of what's mm. there and you know i would argue things like that would actually be in could greatly be in the service of spotify's interests because you're yeah increasing the value of your inventory by mm. showing its cultural worth. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if that becomes more of a thing. Uh, definitely Frank Ocean has been on that. You know, I think a, a lot of people in the hip hop space have done a lot of creating wider platforms for, them, for themselves through fashion, through other lines of cultural output that I think have proven to be extremely meaningful. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see and, more of that. And in Rihanna's case, extremely pop, uh, extremely yeah. uh, profitable. <laughs> yes, and but the truth is, it's hard, right? All of this mm. shit is hard. It's hard to be a musician. It's hard mm. to write a good song. It's hard to mm. write a great essay. It's you know all yeah. these things are humbling in their difficulty to really do well, and so you have to want them. You have to put in the time. You have to see the value. But I think that. I think that there is a there is a hunger there from the audience side. Uh, I think that there is an opportunity to create more meaning there for the artist side. And honestly, I think we just lack examples and infrastructure that really make clear what's possible and why why certain things uh, should be considered more than they are. And it would not surprise me at all to say in 10 years from now, it's like we're complaining about, oh, all the artist-run magazines have crowded out the the journalist <laughs> magazines. Like, oh my God, it's the worst thing ever. Like, yeah. wouldn't shock me. Because I think it's interesting, you, you talked about architecture um, earlier, and I was not, not going to bring up the dancing about architecture, kind of that's what music journalism is. Um, but I keep thinking about and this, I don't know whether this is just the way my brain works, but I keep thinking about the job of a music journalist. It's also it's often quite similar to a cartographer, how you're mapping out the world or building a world that doesn't exist yet. And I, I think a lot about like some of what you're doing with building infrastructure. Like if people don't know where they're headed and what their destination is, they don't know what train tracks they need. Like you, you don't like all of these things are so crucial and maybe it's just because we grew up playing sim city but there's something populous and those like game theme park and all those things where you build worlds um and obviously we now have a generation that've grown up on minecraft i just wonder like where media sits and like what what are the bits of infrastructure we don't have <laughs> to build the world that's not just lonely creators which does allow for collective endeavors and and I know that with MetaLabel, you're trying to answer those questions. Yeah. But I guess I'm thinking if you're sat in Apple's position or 
that just made like a Scorsese movie. That's the kind of money they can throw around. Or if you were, I don't know, not Elon Musk, but someone else where they've just got endless money and they could start to build the infrastructure we need. What would you, what would you think that would look like? I think that they would fuck it up um, because yeah. this is not about money. It's not about infrastructure. Yeah. I think it's about public goods. It's about, it's about the inward search for emotional truth. It's about finding, connecting with the source from which all good creative work comes. It's about mm -hmm. making things for you, not for others. And, and it's about, you know, in the same way, I think of the way a band starts a label to put themselves out and that becomes a platform for people like them to do the same thing. And earlier you talked about there being two different businesses. And I think about there are some projects that are started because someone is doing something for themselves. And there are other projects that are started because someone sees an opportunity. And I think projects where someone is doing it for themselves, but then their spirit is enlarged by that experience. Mm -hmm. And they see they're overwhelmed with what flows to them and that that becomes a raw material, a platform space to flow to others. Like that's where these things come. It doesn't come from being opportunistic. It comes from a truth and a, and a courage and an ability to speak truth, which is extremely hard. You know, maybe, maybe as creative people, we get to do that like a handful of times in our lives, like truly. And it's not something you can strategize towards. It just happens. And, and I trust that it will happen because it keeps happening. Because it keeps happening. Because the spirit is alive. And the spirit is bigger than all of us. This, the source, the, the oneness from which creative work emanates is more powerful than any force on earth. Like it truly, truly is. It is... It is beyond us, but we are it. And, and that is, you know, that creator economy mindset, um, growth-oriented mindsets, these are things that are in conflict with really listening to the source. These are things that are, that are in conflict with actually doing something for yourself, um, which is like, I think, underrated. Doing it for yourself is underrated today. And as I, as you're talking about like, what can journalists do or, you know, I thought about Lenny Kay. Lenny Kay was a great New York city music journalist. And Lenny Kay, I think did maybe one of the best things any music critic has done where he made the nuggets collection, where he was always a huge fan of obscure early rock garage rock. And he just bought so many seven inches and he loved them so much. He kept them. And he made a compilation of like, here's these 25 songs. Some of these, it's the only song a band made, but the song is perfect. And because of my love, I recognize the perfection of the song and I'm going to put it together. And, and so he made the Nuggets collection, which is just an outrageously good record that became the Nuggets box set. Now many volumes, but like everything about Nuggets is, is love. It is not about Letty. It is not about those artists. It is about just look at this. Listen, listen to this. Listen to what a great song these 17 year olds made. And this is the first song they made. Like, listen to this. It's like celebrate the source, celebrate art, celebrate what's here. And that's, that's it. And again, it's like, I, we can't decide that it just it just comes it comes if you do the work it comes and and that's the reason why it's so important and valuable to celebrate these things and to listen and to pay attention and to care and because that gets us closer to these bigger truths that you know that mm. stop us in our tracks when we hear them when we see them I'm very conscious of your time and also the listeners. This isn't going to be a Joe Rogan length podcast. Um, but I, I made two 
slightly sarcastic notes whilst whilst you've been talking one is that we went from scientific journals to to hipster runoff bringing chill wave into the world so which i think both have their value and merits but i was also thinking of that like speak truth to empower speak truth to empower rather than than to power and i think one of the great things that magazines do is they give you that sense of feeling more confident and comfortable that other people share your view so you can express it and also make for instance like one of the things i've heard you talk about in other interviews around the dark forests where people have gone into much more private discussion groups because they know that if they have a deep conversation there it's different than just putting a brain fart out on twitter and that would be misunderstood might be read by the person that it's criticizing or concepts that people are so radicalized about that they don't think for a second that anyone could question their reality. Um, and it just becomes throwing fire at the fire. Um, but I've just been thinking a lot about this, this shift that we've had in the world and that magazines, like you said, meaning purpose like the reasons people start them like all of these things are are so crucial and so important and i don't know i i feel like i feel like it frustrates me that like we have conversations around like music appreciation is something you get in school and like lots of people talking about media literacy but i wonder if one deep down like that my takeaway from this conversation is really that idea of we need media appreciation understanding what goes into it why people do it that there might be something out there for you but you've got to kind of spend the time trying to find it um that i don't know i just thought i'd share my takeaways but my my last question for you really is you've you've said what journalism is what is music journalism and what might it be in the future or what might it look like hard question um I was thinking about this earlier because I think one of the controversial, non-controversial take, but I feel like a, a common rule of thumb in music journalism is don't write bad reviews, mm-hmm. by which is meant don't use your voice and pages to shit on something, like lift lift something up and, mm-hmm. you know, criticize from omission, uh, not from like you know, maybe this is the defense for that uh, jet pitchfork review of the cat getting pissed on or whatever. It's <laughs> omitting all words I've, as a way. Uh, but like. I've always tried to reconcile myself with a lot of my negative reviews have been critiques of capitalism rather than of the artist. <laughs> but it's hard because, you know, it's mm. a, who, who knows what all, what all creative freedom an artist truly had. Mm. I, I go to what is music journalism? I'm just going to say it's ethnography. I'll go to your cartography comment. To me, it's it's for anyone who doesn't know the definition. Do you want to do you want to quickly explain ethnography? Well, I mean, or ethnomusicology, but just like what are the mm. what are the lineages? What are the connections? What are the origins? What is the what is the broader sweep in which this work appears? And uh, help us understand why juvenile you know not rhyming words and back that ass up but instead having like a grunting sound why that was like exciting and what that means Mm. and what that meant at the time and that i think is the most valuable thing it can do because it lets us appreciate and um yeah so i don't know i i would say the most valuable forms are that and to doing that well means like really caring and mm. uh, being in it, being in the scene, being in it. And you know, anyone that writes uh, or documents from that point of view, I'm going to be interested in because mm. you know it's like the like the best TV shows. Like take me inside a world I wouldn't know otherwise. Help me appreciate that world the way people inside do. And I would say any 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 piece anybody that can do that I'm interested, and that I think is a a true service. And not that music journalism needs to be a service, but 
if I think of how do you elevate above sharing an opinion, uh, which is something that anyone can do. Mm. And so that has been yeah. rendered. Which is writing rather than journalism, isn't it? Yes, yes. And so I would say it is mapping the context, making that context something that people can appreciate. Uh, that That I think is maybe the highest form it can attain. So science, we've come back to science. <laughs> science was the star of magazines and it's the future. No, I'm, I'm oversimplifying. Thank you so much for your time, Yancy. I really appreciate it. And I feel like there's, it's good to have been in the soup of all of those thoughts. Um, and I feel like I probably need to do like a follow-up podcast just with my reactions to some of it because there's, there's so much like even just thinking about magazines as record labels like i i joked that we were always both <laughs> um we always tried to just put things into the world that we thought should be there and i think i think it's it's sad to me that there's not a generation that's experienced the kind of like the magazine world that we grew up through the the abundance of publications which especially in the uk off the back of Britpop. Like every magazine had so much more coverage of music in it and newspapers. And so I think there was, and like you obviously in America, like when Spin got big, you then got Fader and you got like all these. And I spent so much papers. money to get Enemy and Melody Maker in the mm. US. It was, yeah. yes, I wanted yours too. Why are all of them? But yeah, yeah no, sorry, for I sure. spent. I spent a premium on Under the Radar and like loads of different American mags that were just so you could read it six page interview about Elliot Smith or something which you couldn't in the UK so yeah we were both doing the same thing from the other side of the but now we could have just downloaded the PDF and we and bitch about it instead yeah <laughs> have a have a reaction within three seconds and post it online worst interview ever <laughs> <laughs> that's not writing that's just typing <laughs> but I got a lot of likes so it was worth it it was worth it sorry yeah. Elliot yeah totally Thank you for listening to the Drowned in Sound podcast. It was hosted by Sean Adams, who also researched, produced, recorded, made the coffee, and did anything else that needed doing. Meanwhile, I'm just an AI voice. We'll see you again soon.